What do you want? Abu, Bakar, al-Baghdadi is dead. A terrorist is responsible for the murder of thousands. This is not a method. This is an historic day. Iran alive. Victim. This is a provocation. French Accent, your podcast about Middle East, terrorism and intelligence with your host, Antoine Mariotti. Hello, everybody. Welcome to this new episode of French Accent. And first of all, Happy New Year to all of you. Today, we will discuss the Syrian chemical weapons issue. My guest has been a reporter for The Washington Post since 1996 and has twice won the Pulitzer Prize for journalism and for his book, Black Flags, The Rise of ISIS. He recently published Red Line, the unraveling of Syrian America's race to destroy the most dangerous arsenal in the world. His name is Joby Warwick. Joby, bonjour and thank you very much for being with us. Bonjour and hello to all the listeners. Wish you all a happy new year. Thank you. Um, first of all, why did you decide to work on this red line issue? And perhaps we have to remind people, what is this, where does this come from, this red line? Mm. Well, again, thank you for having me. This was for me a subject that seemed to be the intersection of all the areas of interest for me in, in the last few years of my career. I've worked a lot on the weapons of mass destruction issue. I've worked a lot on the Middle East, so the, the Arab Spring uprisings, the terrorist threat. Here was a story that seemed to bring together all the elements that, that I've been pursuing. Uh, and at the time, you know, as the rest of the world watched uh, with some interest in 2013 and 2014, when the, the Syria had these terrible chemical weapons atrocities, when when hundreds of people were killed, and then when the international community came together very briefly to try to address the problem and try to eliminate a potential threat to Syrians and to others around the world, and I was fascinated by it at the time, and I wrote some articles, but it seemed to me that. The real story of what happened and why it happened and how we were able to have the intelligence and the cooperation to get those weapons out at a very difficult time in the middle of a civil war. Those are fascinating subjects to me, and it felt worthy of a book, in my opinion. And Barack Obama drew this red line in um, 2012, and even some of his advisors were surprised he, he, he did so at, at the time. Um, and it was, of course, because there was some rumors, some accusations that the Syrian regime did use chemical weapons um, d during the war. Um, and you write in your book, it was uh, Israeli government led by then Prime Minister uh, Benjamin Netanyahu that supplied uh, the intelligence behind this Barack Obama's famous red line uh, warning. Uh, what did the Israelis gave to their U.S. counterparts uh, that pushed Obama uh, to do that? So to back up a little bit, and it's a very good point, uh, because here in my country, everyone remembers the Syrian uh, problem because of the red line issue. It became a political issue for Americans. Uh, the president had essentially declared that any use of chemical weapons would be a red line for us and we would respond in some way. And so the, the, the country was waiting to see what would happen when, when chemical weapons were used. But the backstory is there, there was really good intelligence. And I go into this in some degree in the book. The, the CIA had a, a very good idea of exactly what the Syrians had built, how much, how much sarin they had and where it was kept. And, and there was real concern about the possibility that it would be not just used against Syrian people, but perhaps stolen by terrorists or given to an armed group. There was all these dangerous and scary scenarios floating around in Washington in 2012. And on top of that, 
there was a very specific warning that was passed on by the by Israeli intelligence in 2012 that suggested that indeed the Syrians were preparing to move these chemical weapons. Uh, it, it, to, to recall again, these were hundreds of tons of deadly substances such as sarin, one of the deadliest chemicals ever made. And the fact that these were being moved around and there was a suggestion that perhaps the Syrians were getting ready to give them to one of their allies, such as Hezbollah next door in Lebanon, this very much concerned the, the Obama White House. And they decided to warn the Syrians very specifically with statements publicly from the White House, but also with back channel warnings saying, look, we know what you're doing. Don't do this. Don't go there. Don't move your weapons because this would be a very big problem for us. And the warning worked for a time. Mm. Remarkably, yeah. So <laughs> there was this moment when we were really afraid in the summer of, of 2012. And then things quieted down. The Syrians seemed to stop this activity that the Israelis are worried about. And what we didn't realize at the time, though, was the Syrians were beginning to rethink the purpose of these chemical weapons. Originally, they were meant to be a weapon of mass destruction to use against Israel in a war. But the thought occurred to some of the generals and, and perhaps Assad himself, we can use these to stop uh, rebels and to pre pre preserve our regime, which was at the time under grave threat of collapse. So they began to reimagine using these chemical weapons to stop the rebels. And that's what they began to do. And there have been many uh, small-scale accusations um, before, I'm thinking starting December 2012 and early 2013, but we had, we had to wait June 2013 to hear Ben Rhodes, one of Obama's closest uh, advisors, uh, to say publicly that the Assad regime did use chemical weapons, for sure. Um, um, but the U.S. reaction after their own red line was crossed was not so important, even if... They say behind the scenes they started to help the rebels to um, to do more. Yeah, exactly. It seemed like the, the U.S. administration, unlike uh, the French government, for example, at the time, was being very, very reluctant to declare that uh, this red line had been crossed because of the implications of, of all the things that the, the Obama folks wanted to avoid. They wanted to avoid getting involved militarily in Syria. We'd just gotten troops out of Iraq. We were trying to wind down the war in Afghanistan. These wars are highly unpopular. And so you can see, you know, behind the scenes, the, the Obama folks really fighting the idea of having to publicly say that, yeah, chemical weapons were used because of the consequences. And so you see that uh, Ben Rhodes, the sort of one of the White House senior advisors at the time, sort of tiptoeing around the problem, but finally saying, yeah, we do think that, that chemical weapons have been used against the rebels and there will be consequences for the Syrians when we're ready to do them. Uh, obviously, nothing very public or very dramatic at the time, but they wanted to go on record at last as, as saying that, yeah, we know this has been done and we're concerned about it. And so that year in 2013, on August 21, there is this famous um, big, huge uh, chemical attack uh, in Damascus suburbs, in some different areas uh, around Damascus. Um, is it a big surprise at this time? And what do we, le do we really know today about this attack? It was a very strange attack, uh, you know, thinking back on, on, on how it happened and why, because after this red line declaration, after the Syrians knew that they were being watched and, and, and that there was this international focus on the chemical weapons issue, they went ahead and, and kind of did the big one. They, uh, they launched this massive chemical weapons attack in the Damascus suburbs against rebels. 
and and killed as a result. The, the American estimate was 1,400 uh, civilians, almost all or a huge majority of them women and children. And and on one side, it, it seemed to make no sense. It wasn't very rational for for the uh, for the Syrians to do this. Um, my conclusion, and in, in spending a lot of time looking at this, is there was a, a huge miscalculation. The the, the 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 Syrians did not realize this was going to be such a, a deadly attack as it was. They've been using sarin in small attacks here and there without any real consequences. And this was there was a combination of the weather conditions, sort of the, where the bombs fell, where people were, mostly in basement shelters right around the area. Sarin is heavier than air, so it goes into lower areas. And so they had this this catastrophic event, which I think surprised even them. We know it surprises them because of intercepts, of intelligence intercepts later on that shows them expressing surprise and some alarm about the potential consequences. But they, the intelligence does very clearly point to their culpability, but I do think they miscalculated when they launched an attack that killed so many people, uh, even in the middle of a civil war. And of course, I, I won't go into all the details, but we all remember the US, UK for some days uh, and France um, threatened to strike uh, Syria um, to to sanction uh, the regime um, uh, after that. But very quickly after this attack, the regime moved hundreds of prisoners from their prison to a military airfield. Um, let's be clear, they were used by the regime as human shields, right? Mm. Yeah, and that's a, 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 an incident that's not very well known, but I describe this a bit in the book because I was able to talk to one of the prisoners who was there. And so there was a sense that we, the Syrians really believed that an airstrike was coming. The United States certainly and perhaps French uh, planes and British planes would be involved. And so if it's coming, let's make it as embarrassing, as difficult for the, the Western countries as we can by taking political prisoners, essentially, from one of the, the country's largest prisons and putting them on the airstrip uh, in a hangar right where these attacks would presumably come, because it was known by the Americans that the planes that took off to, or, or the rockets that were launched, rather, to, to do these chemical weapons attacks came from a certain airbase, and there was a belief there'd be a retaliatory strike on the same airbase. And so if we can arrange, the Syrians said, to have this uh, the, this huge number of prisoners killed during this strike, then it would be a, a propaganda coup for us. We make the Americans and the French and the others look bad. And that was the plan. And it didn't succeed in part because this, the missiles never came. Uh, the, Obama decided to hold his hand and, and did not order the strike that everyone expected. And you said it, you interviewed one of the former prisoners who, who was there. His name is Hamada, if I'm correct. Um, uh, what did he tell you? What happened to them? Uh, can you describe what uh, they went through at this time? Yeah, it's it's really uh, horrible to, to hear. It was horrible for me as a, as a journalist to, to, to get this man's account, because here's someone that uh, was was heavily tortured in prison. And we have good documentation of that. And I met with him and we could see the scars, a very difficult uh, physical and, and psychological ordeal. And then in the middle of this, he recalls being taken out of out of the his prison one day without any explanation, put on a bus and hauled to this airport uh, near Damascus, and then placed in this hangar. And this is late August, early September of, of, of 2013. It's it's the Syrian summer. It's ferociously hot. And you have hundreds of these prisoners just forced to sit on the, the hard concrete inside a hangar where the temperatures during the day would, would reach almost intolerable levels. And just to stay there for day after day without any explanation and just sitting there waiting and waiting as a found out later, waiting for these missiles to come and, and kill them. 
And eventually, when it was it turned out, it was clear that the these missiles weren't coming. They were just put back in their buses and and sent back to prison. But it was this weird, almost surreal ordeal in the middle of what was already a really terrible situation for these men to be kind of put inside these these hot hangers and then forced to wait there, knowing that missiles could be coming to end their life any time. And the, one of the crazy things, because <laughs> not only one crazy thing in this story, uh, is that it took months to have all the authorizations to have a UN team in Damascus uh, with investigators uh, who knew what they were talking about <laughs> when we speak about chemical weapons. And they just arrived a few days only um, before this massive chemical attack of August 2013. And I was in Damascus at that time and I tried to interview them and I saw them, etc. And they were trying to, to, to do what they could, which was not um, uh, easy. But In the days after that, uh, Angela Kane from the UN uh, tried to push the regime to allow an investigation on this attack, which wasn't planned. They were supposed to work on other smaller um, uh, attacks, including Khan al-Assad, uh, which, which the regime said uh, as the opposi opposition um, did this attack. Um, it was not easy for the UN team to go on site. There was tension with some rebel groups. Uh, they were part of the suburbs were under the control of Islamist extremists. Uh, it was really not easy for them. And you, you talk about it in your book. Yeah, it is one of the most remarkable parts of the story to me. And, and I, I really came to admire some of these, these inspectors that you got to meet. But yeah, here, this, is, this is really remarkable that just before this, this terrible attack happens, this team of, of UN investigators arrives in Syria to begin a probe into these other attacks, the ones that had taken place weeks earlier. And it was going to be kind of, uh, I guess that their expectations were not very high. It was uh, not a very dangerous job for them. They were going to go with Syrian escorts to various towns and try to interview people in hospitals. So it was almost a, a pointless exercise, to be honest, because they didn't really think that anything would come of it. And as they're there, as they are in Damascus trying to do this work, This horrific uh, chemical weapons attack takes place right in the suburbs uh, of Damascus, right almost within sight of their hotel, just a few miles away. And so they felt absolutely compelled to go on the ground and, and gather information quickly before you know, evidence could be you know, hidden or, or, or taken away. And so they were able to eventually force the Syrians to allow them to go and investigate But the Syrians said, you have to do this on your own. We're not going to go with you. You have to take the risks on your own, crossing into no man's land, crossing into rebel territory, dealing with the various militant groups, including some Islamists. And, and you know, good luck with that. But if you want to go, you're on your own. And these these inspectors, they were Germans and French and, and Canadians and, uh, you know, people who British. don't normally. Yes. And French who don't normally go into these kinds of risky situations. But they were very brave and they decided to cross the, the no man's land to, to gather information. And they they came under attack. They were they were fired upon. They had to stop and, and turn back at one point because of sniper fire. But they just turned around and went back again, determined that if if they were going to ever get this job done, they had to do it at that moment. And I, I, I just have all kinds of admiration for them to a person for having that kind of bravery. 
Yes, they were very brave because Angela Kane, I just mentioned, who was a big boss. There was Aker Selstrom, who was a, a chief inspector, but above him was uh, Angela Kane. She told me what, when they came back after being shot, I said, okay, if you don't want to go back, don't go back. It's, your life is at stake. And they said, no, no, we want to go back. So it's, they were really brave, as you, as you just said. And we don't think of, you know, we don't think of our UN bureaucrats necessarily as yeah. being that way. This is kind of a kind of a pencil pushing job in our imagination. But but these people had real courage and they didn't have to do what they did, but they wanted to find the truth and, and they took personal risks to do it. Exactly. Um, as we said, many, many elements tend to show that the Syrian regime uh, is responsible, of course, of these attacks. Uh, can you remind us some... Uh, of those elements, I'm, I'm thinking about examine, for example. Uh, and is there any doubt for you today about the responsibility of the regime or not at all? Mm, there's not at all. And I say that for several reasons. I can tell you, and, and you perhaps know this from your own reporting, there was skepticism among the UN inspectors when they first went in to do the job. They, they didn't see how it would be logical for the Syrians to, to pull off an attack like this. Maybe it was possible that someone had done it as a false flag. So they went into this investigation with their eyes wide open in that sense. Um, other countries were skeptical as well. But these inspectors, the, the value of them going there was that they were able to collect evidence, including samples of the sarin. And much later, we're able to compare the sarin used in the attack with what is in the, the Assad arsenal, which you know Assad eventually acknowledged that he had, allowed inspectors to come take the material. So you could chemically compare the sarin that was used that day to what, uh, to what we know that, that uh, Assad had. And it's very, very specific. There are chemical tracers, trace elements, additives that are unique to, 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 to sarin that's made by the Syrian government that it's pretty hard to replicate and have it, has it been seen anywhere else in the world. It's also, I have to just remind listeners that it's not that easy to make binary sarin, these just very sophisticated military-grade sarin that can be handled you know, uh, professionally and then put into artillery shells and then lobbed at a military target. That is very difficult to do, and no one has ever made a suggestion that the Syrian rebels had any of these capabilities or were in the places Uh, where the, rep the rockets were fired that day, which were all from Syrian-held territory into rebel territory. So like, if you add up all the pieces of evidence, it seems incontrovertible. And all the, seri the serious investigators that have looked at this are unanimous in that view. And I talked about crazy things uh, a few minutes ago. Uh, there is uh, one other crazy thing is the way Obama took that decision not to strike. Uh, as we all know, he walked... Uh, on the south lawn of the White House with, with his chief of staff, Dennis McDonough, uh, who was one of his very one of the very few opposed to the idea of, of striking. Uh, and then he comes back to the Oval Office. He asks some advisors to come, uh, including Susan Rice. He explained uh, that he decided not to strike. Uh, he asks them what they think. And bang, the decision is, is taken. While the defense secretary is not there, And while the Secretary of State, John Kerry, isn't there too, he was uh, in his couch at home in Georgetown. How strange is his decision-making process? Mm. It, was, it was strange because you're right. There were, there were people within the administration, uh, if you polled them that day, like, what, should we strike Syria or not? There would be a pretty close to overwhelming majority of advisors saying, yeah, we, we promised to strike. This is a red line for us. We should strike. Kerry certainly being one of them who maintains to this day that military action should have been taken. 
and others as well. You, you get the sense that that uh, Obama was was ready to be talked out of it. Uh, he was ready for possibly because of a conversation he had with Angela Merkel just just before his decision was made. She warned him, you know, very clearly, you know, there, there are dangers here. We should wait and let a U.N. investigation continue. Uh, this is a slippery slope in terms of leading to an, to another conflict. And so he's getting these words of caution from uh, from members of Congress, from some of his foreign allies. And I think just instinctively, this was a president who who was very careful about the use of force. And he had campaigned as president, arguing that presidents are, are, are too quick to use force without seeking approval of Congress. And so he just decided in his own mind that if we are going to strike, we should do it slowly and deliberately and not rush out to do something. And so even after that, that uh, famous walk through the Rose Garden and, and kind of calming himself down, I think there was still a belief that he was going to launch a strike eventually, but he's going to wait to do it with congressional backing and with the support of the American people behind it. And of course, that never happened. Congress refused to get behind the possibility of another war. And so in the end, Obama was left kind of naked. He had no real option. He couldn't strike because he had yeah. said he needed support and he didn't have it. Yeah, and you say it in your book, there was no plan B. Samantha Power said at the time, we were naked, we were so naked. You quote her in, in your book. So um, sorry to say it this way, but did Russia save the U.S. administration's ass? You can certainly look at that because out of the blue, when things looked really bleak and there were no other options, they felt like they essentially boxed themselves in. Here comes this Russian proposal Let's get the weapons out. If you don't like these chemical weapons, we'll work with you. We think the Syrians will agree to eliminate them. And so that became a potential win for everybody because Obama could say, I did something very important. I got these weapons out, which in a way is, is, is a bigger gain, a bigger win for the world. It's really hard to eliminate a chemical weapons with a military attack because you don't want to bomb the actual weapons. If you do, they'll break and the chemicals will, will spread to other neighborhoods and you'll kill more people. And so the idea of getting them out, which no, no one ever thought that the Syrians would agree to, this becomes this miraculous solution Thank you, Russia, for uh, proposing the idea of, of uh, help, you know, helping us get rid of these weapons once and for all. And you give many details about that. Remind us how it worked, because it was in the middle of an ongoing war uh, with many dangerous groups, and no one wanted to take those chemical weapons on their territory to destroy them. No European country, uh, nobody in the region, not even Russia. Uh, so they did it on a boat, which was quite risky. Yes, exactly. So you, could, yeah, you just mentioned so many problems with trying to do this. You do have an active civil war. Nobody's declaring a ceasefire so the UN can go in there and get the weapons and take them out again. That you, you have uh, you know, so many risks just handling the weapons. I should remind listeners that the United States and Russia both had very big stockpiles of chemical weapons during the Cold War, and they agreed to give them up. It took them decades 20 years to eliminate their chemical weapons, building expensive incinerators and spending lots of money. And the, United, the Americans still aren't finished with it. And so the, the idea of getting out 1,300 tons of really bad stuff in the middle of a civil war and then destroying it using a process that hadn't even been invented yet, it's remarkable looking back at it, how they, they managed to pull this off. And even though it wasn't perfect, the fact that they got 1,300 tons of chemicals out and destroyed them at you know, on a boat that hadn't existed before the, the you know, the, this operation started, it, it is really remarkable to think about. 
and some uh, foreign um, intelligence services like CIA, of course, and the French DGSE uh, had a very good knowledge of the Syrian chemical program. Uh, did that help to move quickly and make a deal with the Russians? It did in the sense that once the talks became serious, once the Russians and the Syrians and, and the Americans, everyone is kind of working through the details of how to do this, the Syrians initially said, well, we have X amount of chemical weapons and it's located here, here, and here. The The CIA quickly came out and said, oh, no, no, you've got more than that. We know this. And we know there are actually these other places too. So before the whole process started, there had to be a, an accounting of exactly how much the Syrians had, where it was located. And from there, you can go on to discuss how to get it out. So that was important. It was also important because we knew that we, the Americans, the CIA, and the French as well, that some cheating was going on. It was seen as inevitable that Syria would probably try to hide some of it. And the conclusion was, at least by the Americans, that they probably kept about 10% of it held away someplace as kind of a, an emergency stockpile in case they were really in trouble and thought they were going to collapse. And as we speak of this knowledge, uh, you tell the story of a CIA asset in Syria uh, at the beginning of your book. Can you tell us more about him and, and what he had done for the agency? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is one of my favorite stories in the whole book. And it actually is the start of this story for me because it takes place way back in the 1980s. The reason we, the West, knew so much about Syria's chemical weapons program is because we had a really great spy. We had one of the best possible informants that you could have, which was a scientist, senior scientist, who was inside the program and helped develop it. He was one of the ones that helped the Syrians come up with, this, with their formula for sarin and then produced it in their secret laboratories. And he became an informant for the CIA. And for 14 years, he sent remarkable detail in secret communications to the CIA about what the Syrians were doing with chemical weapons and how much they had and where it was. And so that way, when this whole thing went down in 2013, and when there was suddenly this moment when we wanted to get those weapons out, because of this spy, we, we knew where it all was. We knew what the Syrians had, we knew how dangerous it was, and it really helped inform our intelligence people when it came time to devise a plan for removing these dangerous weapons from Syria. Um, Sometime later, uh, I think it was the end of 2016, in December 2016, uh, Obama, in an interview with The Atlantic, uh, said he took the right decision at the time. Um, and uh, as you know, I wrote a book about Syria also, uh, and I interviewed many people from the White House, from the State Department, the Defense Department, uh, and even CIA. And all the people who worked with President Obama I interviewed told me it was a huge mi mistake not to strike in August 2013, and they disagreed with him. Um, I don't even speak about the French officials <laughs> or even the French president. They also told me that it was really not a good decision at all for, for, for them, um, according to them. What about all the American people you interviewed? Did they think the same way? Uh, we, we'll talk about the Syrians after, but f first the American ones. Mm. Yeah, so the, I think it's a very political issue here in America, as you can imagine, and that people who dislike Obama see this in particular as one of his biggest mistakes. And you're right that a lot of his advisors still think that some kind of military action should have happened in 2013. Obama's argument is, is an interesting one, and I think it can't be discounted. His, his point is that, you know, I didn't say I was going to take a military strike if the red line was, was crossed. I said there would be consequences for Syria. The biggest consequence of all, if you think about it, was the elimination of their most important military stockpile. This was 
Syria's strategic weapon. It was the counterbalance to nuclear weapons in next door Israel. And to get rid of not just the weapons themselves, but the production equipment and you know factories where the stuff was made, you know, all that stuff was taken out, or most of it was taken out. And you could not have accomplished that with a bomb. It, it, we, we saw what happens when you you have an airstrike. Trump tried this in 2017 and 2018. There was use of, of sarin in 2017 by the Syrian military. So he launches an airstrike with the British. A couple of airfields are hit. Uh, the airfields are back in operation the same day. No chemical weapons are destroyed. So it becomes like a symbolic punishment that doesn't really accomplish anything. In hindsight, a much greater accomplishment is taking 1,300 tons of chemical weapons out of the country. Even if you don't eliminate them for all time, these are weapons that the Syrians can't use against their own people. These are weapons that can't be stolen by terrorists and used in a terrorist attack in Paris or somewhere else around the world. But the situation was not the same in 2013, where it could have, uh, have had an, an impact you know, on the situation, at least a moral one, and, and, and for the opposition, uh, than in 2017 and then uh, 2018, where... The war was not over, but it was already done. The, the Russians were there uh, for two years, uh, three years. So it, we knew Assad was not about to be toppled. Yeah, and that is a good point, too. It, so there's the one issue, which is the chemical weapons issue. And you can argue that a greater good was done by getting the weapons out. The other question that we really can't answer is whether or not it would have been strategically important for a military strike to happen at that moment, if it would have changed the outcome of the war. The Syrian rebels, and, and perhaps this is where we're going next, would be, they would absolutely say that, that a military strike in 2013 could have broken the back of this, the Assad regime way before the Russians became involved. That could have been a decisive moment in the war. Um, that's an interesting argument. I feel like it's not certain. You can't know for sure because we can't replay history and see what would have sure. happened. And m one thing that makes me a bit cautious about that point of view is that We see now how absolutely determined the Russians and Syrians, oh, sorry, the Russians and the Iranians were to the survival of the Assad regime. And the, the, whether or not the Russians would have allowed uh, the rebels to take over, the, you know, would, would they have allowed the rebels to succeed? I, I don't know. They, might, they could have gotten involved militarily sooner. I'm, I just, I don't know that. And the other is, is whether the, the rebels were ever cohesive enough. I know they argue that they were, but as we look at how fractious and divided uh, the, sort of the opposition movement has been, to, to, we, I don't think we can necessarily say that they had the strength and the, you know, and the ability to ultimately defeat Assad, even in 2013. I, I don't know that. I just think it's, it's an interesting question for debate and future historians can look at this. I, I just don't know that they, they could have accomplished it. I completely agree. Uh, I just think that, as you write it, uh, it crushed all their hopes and, and the rebels realized at that time they, they really are on their own. So it made the situation even worse. Mm, absolutely true. And it is true as a, as a matter of a, a morale breaker for the, for the rebels. And that it's so clear even today when, when you speak to them, that was the moment when they felt, you know, the West is never coming to help us. That if we're going to win this fight, we have to win it on our own. And uh, and a lot of them decided that the you know the thing to do would would be to join the Islamists, to join the Al Qaeda, you know, Al Nusra folks, the uh, the ISIS people. Some of them drifted that way because they became so disillusioned and so discouraged. 
uh, that the West wasn't coming to help them. And that was kind of the, the straw that broke the proverbial camel's back. Yeah, you explained that it became a recruitment tool for them, for the Islamist groups. Uh, absolutely. And, 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 and still, it, even now in conversations with, with not just the, you know, the, the, the sort of the friendly opposition, the ones that we claimed, uh, to, you know, that we supported, but some of the ones that are a little bit more on the, on the radical side, you know, point to this moment as being, this was a recruitment tool for, for, the, for the worst of us, for the, for the ISIS people who were determined to, to build a caliphate and didn't really care about having a democracy. They were able to gain traction in their arguments because they could say, look, the Americans and the French in the West, they're not coming to help you. So come with us. We're the only ones with the guns and the plans that can win. So do you think August 2013 was a huge turning point? I do, for multiple reasons. I think for the narrow piece of this, which is the chemical weapons piece of this, it was the moment that, that at least brought the international national community together on the idea of eliminating really serious weapons threat. The existence of 1,300 tons of chemical weapons in the middle of a war zone, when you have territory that's being lost every day by the regime, when you have the possibility and really a real plan by some of the opposition groups to take some of this chemical weapons, you could just imagine how dangerous that would have been. And so the, the fact that this was a galvanizing moment that helped to eliminate the stockpile, or most of it, that was really important and a turning point in that part of the story. And but yet you're also, it's also accurate in saying that in the sort of the timeline of the, of the opposition, in the Uh, and the, sort of the momentum of, of the rebels and going after the, the Assad regime, it was a turning point as well because it, it really convinced a lot of them that it was a, a lost cause or at least lost cause in trying to get the West to come and help them and come to their rescue. Um, so as we know, they destroyed the, the Syrian chemical arsenal, um, but there have been many other chemical attacks since, uh, very often with chlorine. Um, first, can you remind our listeners if chlorine was supposed to be destroyed too with sarin, etc.? Yeah, and this is an important distinction because you're right. After the, the removal of, of the stockpile and destruction of the stockpile in 2014, Syria starts using chemical weapons again, but they're, they're using common industrial chlorine, which is something that's used to clean drinking water and you, you clean your swimming pools with it. It has a, a thousand uses. And so it's a substance that's not banned. You're not supposed to use it as a chemical weapon, but you're allowed to have it. Syria is allowed to have it. They still have it. And so there's really no way to, to eliminate this chemical that, that the Syrians then continue to use as a weapon. And later on, it turns out that they had some sarin left over too that, that they used in, in future attacks. So it was an elimination of a capability, it wasn't an elimination of an intention, which was to continue to use any means, including chemicals, to try to break the morale of the rebels and to, to defend the regime at all costs. Um, Western countries and the Syrian opposition often accused uh, the Syrian regime to be behind the numerous chemical attacks. In the same time, the regime, of course, uh, accused the opposition and said the rebels have to be held uh, accountable. During your investigation, did you find any evidence showing the opposition, Islamist or not, uh, used chemical weapons at some point since the beginning of the conflict in 2011 or not at all? Mm. There was one exceptional case in terms of rebels using chemical weapons that we absolutely know happened. 
and that is the Islamic State, ISIS. They used chlorine uh, as a military weapon. They tried to use it uh, both in Syria and Iraq against opposition forces, mostly Kurds who were, who were fighting them. But they eventually decided to try to, to branch out and make something a little more sophisticated. So they, they had dedicated laboratories in Iraq for making mustard, which is a crude chemical weapon. It's World War I era stuff, but it's, it's deadly, it's dangerous, and they managed to make it. And the, the, the great fear is that if they had been allowed to continue, uh, if, the, if the caliphate had not been destroyed, eventually they would have made a better product. Um, so that's the one exception. We know that ISIS wanted chemical weapons. It wanted to steal them. If it couldn't steal them, it wanted to make their own. And we know they used them. And the OPCW, the inspectors that came in from The Hague, also confirmed that ISIS had, had done this. Uh, other rebel groups, we're not sure of any hard evidence anywhere that exists of them actually using chemical weapons or obtaining any of the ones that belong to the Assad regime. Assad makes this accusation all the time that, well, they stole, the rebels stole some of our stockpile. We don't see evidence of that. And because of the nature of the sarin gas that, uh, that Syria has, it's not ready to use. It has to be mixed first. You have to combine two separate products like peanut butter and jelly combined together to make a deadly gas. That takes technology and it takes equipment. It takes very specialized loading equipment to mix those chemicals. We have no indication that uh, the rebels ever had access to those kinds of uh, uh, equipment or, or, or the materials themselves. One last question to remind our listeners, where is Syria now? Um, chemicals or not, the war wasn't over after August 2013, uh, and it's not over yet, even if there is no more chance for the opposition to, um, to win. And nearly 11 years after, Syria is still in an awful situation. Uh, I mentioned it earlier, you wrote a terrific book about ISIS, the Islamic State. Um, how dangerous is ISIS today in Syria? How bad is the situation there? Um, and is the regime still bombing and torturing people? Mm. Yeah, the, the, the news is really bad, unfortunately, on both of those fronts, because we do see, even though the, the war is winding down, the, the fighting continues on a very low level, but there's still, you know, province in the Northwest that's, that's rebel held. Uh, and in the, in the East as well, there's this Kurdish territory, fighting continues. Uh, more significantly for Syrian people, the suffering continues in refugee camps, inside Syria itself, in Syrian prisons where opposition figures or, or, or communities that were helpful to the opposition have, have experienced mistreatment and in some cases torture and death. The other problem is, is ISIS, which persists. The caliphate is destroyed. There are still thousands, however, of people who were loyal to ISIS, who fought with ISIS, who were trained with ISIS, who just went home and are back in their villages. And you see every week reports of small attacks here and there um, in Iraq and Syria both, where, where ISIS keeps trying to be relevant, keeps trying to rebuild, uh, if not a caliphate, at least an organized effort to, 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 you know, to be relevant, to, to continue to fight and, and to, to claim some kind of legitimacy as a group. 
Joby, thank you so much for your time today. It was a pleasure to have you in French Accent and thank you for this terrific book. I, I really loved it. And Antoine, that was a really great interview. It was, uh, and I, it's great to talk to someone who knows the subject so well. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed being with you. I wish you uh, and all your, leaders, all your readers and listeners much success. Thank you and thank you everybody for listening. Do not hesitate to share this episode on social medias. It helps. Have a nice day and see you next time for a new episode of French Accent. Take care. This was French Accent. Listen to our previous episodes and do not miss the next ones on FrenchAccentPodcast.com and follow us on Twitter and Instagram.